Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please take up your Bibles. And let us hear from the Lord once again. We're going to be reading chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. It's on page 269. Or if you've got a blue, larger print, 317. Let's listen to God's words together. 2 Samuel 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab, And Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss that uh, there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country in the forest of Ad, more people that day than the sword and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on and a certain man saw it and told Joab behold I saw Absalom hanging in an oak and Joab said to the man who told him what you saw him Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, there was nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom 
and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. It is called Absalom, Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You're not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outrun the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. The king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hands against my lord the king. And the king said, it is, well with the, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what, is, what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. These are God's words to us. I don't know what the conversation in your house has been like this week, around your breakfast table, your evening meal table. In our family, we've been talking about Piers Morgan a lot this week at home. It's not a usual topic of conversation in our house, uh, but there it is this week. Uh, some of us have watched the brief clips of Piers Morgan uncensored this week, where he, he had in the studio with him a TikTok star, a prankster by the name of Mizzy. I don't know if any of you follow Mizzy or have seen him. Um, Mizzy is a young man who has been arrested for doing things like simply walking down the street and walking into people's homes, trying the door handle, walking in and filming himself or with a friend fil filming himself in, in people's living rooms, walking into a library and tearing up the library books in front of the librarians, abusing people in the streets. And of course, this is just gold dust for Piers Morgan, isn't it? He gets him into the studio 
And Piers Morgan asks him directly, why do you, why do, you do this? P- people will hate you for it. And Mizzy says, hate brings likes. Likes on TikTok. Hate brings views. And hate brings money. And of course, Piers Morgan attacks him even more. He says to him, I think you're an idiot. What you're doing is wrong. It's awful. And I think you're an idiot. And of course, Mizzy simply responds with abuse back to Piers Morgan, doesn't he? And on and on it goes. And Piers Morgan gets the likes and the money. But I'll tell you, friends, what I saw in watching that program, that brief clip. Piers Morgan in the studio talking to this young man, Mizzy. I saw a lost and scared young man. In all his bravado and all his desire for notoriety, I can assure you that what is missing in his heart is love. A desire for likes from strangers is greater than his awareness of his need for love. How how do you help a young man like Mizzy? What does Mizzy need? Justice or love? What does he need? Some of you may know, just a day after being on Piers Morgan's show, he was arrested, and this time arrested for riding on the roof of a bus. And, and some of us say, good. We say, at last, justice. At last, a prison sentence. That's what that young man needs. Yes, we need justice, of course, but doesn't he need love too? What about forgiveness and justice? Can forgiveness and justice ever meet? Uh, I've just started reading Tim Keller's uh, new book, the, the last book that he wrote before he died, a wonderful book called Forgive. And Keller opens the book by reminding us, 2018, a police officer, a white policewoman, Amber Geiger, shot and killed a black man, Botham Jean. She returned home at the end of a shift and wrongly entered the opposite apartment from her own one and met this black man in, in his apartment, thought it was her apartment, and shot him dead. You, you may remember just after she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, after the, the judge has handed down the sentence, Botham's brother, Brandt, publicly forgave her in the courtroom and embraced her. Was what he did right or wrong? You may remember the reaction to what he did was really mixed all across the world. That that young man, Brandt, received an award from the Institute for Law Enforcement, an award for outstanding conduct. But other people from his own community said public black forgiveness of white offenses merely supports white supremacy, encourages white dominance. Love and forgiveness and justice. How do you do one of them without harming the other? Can you do both? Can love and justice, forgiveness and justice meet Can they kiss? Can they be friends? This is an age-old problem, isn't it? Every society faces it, and the Bible knows about this. And our passage this evening is that dilemma in story form. 
And friends, it is a profoundly important matter for us to look at, for it affects the nature of God and what it means to believe in him. Can God be just and justify the ungodly? Can God be just, say that sin is sin and must be punished, and can God declare sinners righteous? How can he be right to declare people who are wrong to be in the right? How do you do it? Our passage this evening, I don't don't know if you've been able to follow it, following along week by week, getting into the feel of the story. This passage is about David's love for his son Absalom. And that love for his son is in conflict with the need for justice for his son. That Absalom, remember, is a pretender king. He, he has betrayed his father. He is a traitor. And Absalom and his followers need to be conquered and vanquished and removed. Do you remember chapter 17, verse 14? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is going to happen. Absalom will fail. But friends, what happens when the harm upon Absalom comes at the cost of a father's love? It's a a hugely moving story, isn't it, that Will read so well for us. Really, in some ways this evening, I just just want us to enjoy the story, if enjoy is, is the right word. Just to take in the story while we reflect on that big question, can love and justice meet? Take take in the big picture of the story in front of you. This is showdown time, isn't it? David and his outnumbered men, the opening verses of chapter 18, David and his outnumbered men are going into battle with Absalom and his superior army. But somehow David seems to know how to use the terrain to his advantage. He he manages to get the conquest fought in the forest of Ephraim. And as far as we can tell, that forest was a treacherous wilderness of a place to be in. The forest consumes even more men that die by the sword. Look at it, verses 6, 7, 8, three verses. The whole battle is summarized in three verses, that's it. But the whole chapter is really about David and Absalom, isn't it? Ten ten verses on Absalom's encounter with David's troops. Just look at the interplay here between the characters. This is all about love and justice clashing as the characters interact with each other. Chapter 18, verse 2. It looks, doesn't it, like David has recovered his courage and and bravery. Do you remember how everything went wrong up on the rooftop? That the soldiers went out to war and David stayed at home. And in chapter 18, verse 2, it's as if David is trying to reverse that. I myself will go out with you to war. I will come and fight. No, 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 they say, verse 3. You stay. You stay here. It's very interesting to me, friends. These men love David. They love him. I wonder, how, I wonder how you feel about him this evening after all we've been through with him. That the kind of flawed, broken man that he is. Isn't it interesting? His men love him. I think there's something compelling about David, isn't there? Yes, he's sinful. Yes, he's broken. But he is so human. And his men love him. You're, you're too valuable, David. You stay. 
And yet, look at verse 4. There, there's more to it, isn't there? This desire to go out to fight. The king said to them, okay, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And imagine David's heart beating faster and faster as the, the, the thunder of hooves goes past him. What is going to happen to my son? And the king, verse 5 ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, the the three commanders of the three heads of the army, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Can you hear what David's saying? He's just a boy. He's just a kid. Yes, he did this against me, but he's my son. He's just a boy. Do Do you see why his men don't want him there? His judgment is flawed, isn't it? Can love and justice meet? Listen to one commentator. David's order in verse 5, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. David's order shows that even before the battle, David was willing to abandon military and moral considerations in view of his personal feelings. On the one hand, he's sending out these men to risk their lives from him and his throne, while on the other hand, he is prepared to ask expressly that his son, who is the root of all evil, shall not be killed. He's putting his men in danger, isn't he? Giving them an impossible command. Did you see it, friends? How do you put these, these two things together? How do you put love and justice together? Friends, how do you put down a rebellion if the leader of the rebellion is your own flesh and blood, your own son? How can you be just and justify the ungodly? You see the last part of verse 5, it's just a hint to us, isn't it? that it's the narrator's clue that something is going to go down with Absalom and all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Ah, everybody knows he is not to be harmed. So what will happen to him? Dale Ralph Davis says that in this story, David is the one carrying the heaviest anguish and Absalom is the one who meets the crudest end And Joab is the one who acts with the clearest realism. Those are the components of what's happening. A heavy heart, a crude end, brutal realism. This stabbing of Absalom in the tree, the men come across Absalom. They meet him. And they meet him because as he's riding on his mule, verse 9, the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak. Many people through the ages think this is all to do with his hair. Remember what we've said about him? Lord luscious locks, those long flowing, uh, long flowing locks from his head. And the, the pictures I had as a boy growing up in a storybook Bible were of Absalom hanging by his hair from the tree. But of course, it doesn't actually say that. Maybe, maybe it is his hair, but verse 9 simply says, his head caught fast in the oak. Most likely, he's looking back over his shoulder and the, the, the horse slams him head first into a Y-bend in the tree and he's, he's stuck there. Joab hears about this. He's incredulous that someone hasn't killed him. He takes the chance. Three javelins, perhaps one for each of the three units 
of the army that he's commanding. Perhaps the javelins knock Absalom out of the tree to the ground. And there's a summary execution, verse 15. His body is tossed in a rubbish heap. Then the rest of the chapter, we we simply have this kind of strange competition to make it back to David with the news, don't we? A, A competition between Ahimaaz, who just seems desperate to be the one to tell David the rebellion's been crushed, and yet Joab doesn't want him to mention Absalom's death, so he sends another runner, the Cushite. And when Ahimaaz and the Cushite get to David, they both report the news differently, don't they? All David wants to know is, what has happened to my son? What has happened to Absalom? And Ahimaaz bottles it, doesn't he? Ahimaaz bottles it. Verse 28, he cried out to the king, all is well. All is well. I I like what Alistair Begg says. Listen to this. What happens there, verse 28, is quite remarkable. This man bottles it. He gets cold feet. He just rambles and mumbles. He is like a pastor who has lost confidence in the gospel. He's like a pastor who is no longer able to actually tell the absolute truth to power standing in front of him. A man who's no longer prepared to say, the reason the good news is the good news is because the bad news is that you are lost before God. No, oh no, people say, please don't say that. And Alistair Begg points out, do you notice that Ahimaaz makes himself irrelevant here? He's a good man with good news, David says. Says in verse 30, turn aside, stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Alistair Begg says, oh, there is many a frozen pastor. Turn aside, says God. Turn aside and stand still. Either tell the whole truth or be done with the whole business. Tell the truth or be done with the whole business. Who would ever think of you as a messenger if you cannot tell the truth? And then the Cushite comes and he comes with the truth, doesn't he? Verse 32. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil... May they be like that young man. It's a way of saying he's dead. Justice has been done. Oh, do you see the justice here? It's justice on every hand, isn't it? Absalom, the pretender, the upstart, the man leading the coup, has paid with his life. Justice has been done, but what about the love? Verse 33, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And he went, as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Friends, who do you want ruling the kingdom? Who do you want ruling the, ki- ruling the kingdom? What, what, what do we often say we want? We want justice on every hand. Yes, wonderful. We want all enemies destroyed. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. But what about us when we cry for that? Tell me, friend, this evening, have you obeyed this king 
perfectly? Have you obeyed this king perfectly? Have you loved him with heart, soul, mind, and strength? You see what the Cushite says? May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be judged. Have you ever risen up against him for evil? This past week? This past day? Hour? I I was thinking about it this week as I was preparing this and putting notes down in in sermon form. Why is it that as a pastor I can speak to other people about their marriages and as they tell me about their marriage, I can analyze and see what's happening. I can explain to a husband what headship means in sacrificial care and responsibility. Why can I see and then do that and speak and then treat my own wife with harshness, not kindness? Neglect instead of responsibility. Have you ever thought about that, friend? Why why is it that the people closest to us, whom we can hurt so deeply, so easily, so often, we we, we say, we look at this story, Absalom got what was coming to him. Sure, it's maybe a bit rough, but we wouldn't do it like that today. But this is rough justice. He got what he deserved. Really? What about my evil against the Lord's anointed? What what about my rising up? Sure, it hasn't been broadcast the way that Absalom's was on the evening news across the city. But it's real. Let me put it like this, friends. Why are we so comfortable with asking for love for us but justice for others? Is that what we want? Mercy for me, please, Lord. Forgiveness for me. Justice for them. Love for me. Forgiveness and mercy for my sin. My attempts to usurp the king of the universe, but justice for other people's attempts. What about love for them? See David's love, verse 33. Isn't Isn't it moving? The king was deeply moved. Look at it again. Went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Somebody has said there are three features in that verse of David's grieving cry. Three features. Number one, it is a cry of loss. Do you notice that the young man has become, not the young man anymore, but my son. My son, five times he uses that phrase. Oh, isn't it true? Blood is thicker than water. Yes, he is a rebel. Yes, he is an upstart. Yes, he is a traitor, but he is still my son. Death tears bonds that have become part of our very selves, haven't they? There is a kind of grief that in bereavement is unutterably awful. This is a cry of loss from an, an ordinary man who above all else is a father. Secondly, this is a cry of regret, isn't it? And how true it is that many people in grief cry bitter tears. 
Bitter tears of regret. Look, look, how, look how he puts it, th- th- those two little words, would I, if only I, oh, would that I had died instead of you. It's a way of saying if only, if only. Isn't it true here, David knows that his own sins have been the soil in which all of this mess has grown. He knows he's caused it. He's been responsible for it, even as Absalom himself is responsible for it too. It seems, doesn't it, it is very likely that here David's guilt has inflamed his grief. Guilt has aggravated his grief. Listen to these words. David here cries the cry of a man who wishes that he could go back and change the clock. You know that kind of bitterness? retracing your steps, if only I could go back to it, if only he had not taken more than one wife, if only he had repented of that and sought to bring peace to his family, if only he had not plotted the murder of Uriah, if only he had intervened as a parent to deal with the horrible situation with Tamar and Amnon and to quiet the heart of Absalom, his son, if only, if only, This writer says, these two words are the saddest words in the world. A cry of loss, a cry of regret. Thirdly, it is a cry of longing, isn't it? If only, what does he he say, if only? Would I had died instead of you? I, I think, friends, that, that little phrase, that's where we just begin to glimpse, isn't it? Just the barest outline of an answer to our question, can love and justice meet? There it is in that little phrase. See, David's cry here has a longing to do something that just hints at the answer to the question. David knows, doesn't he, that Absalom's death is because the sword, God's sword, has fallen on his house. Remember the prophet Nathan, chapter 12? Because you have done this, the sword will not depart from your house. In all of David's grief here, there is this sense, isn't there, that he has done this. He's the one that's caused this. People are dying because of him. And so this cry of longing, would that I had died instead of you. Do you notice how it has both love and justice in it? Both of them bound up in it at the same time. My death, that's justice. I should have died. That's what I deserve. And love, my death instead of yours. That's love, isn't it? I'll take your place. Substitution. Isn't that what happens with parents, with a family? Your little child breaks the neighbor's window, kicks the football through the window or something on the street. Justice demands that someone pays for the broken window. But the child can't pay. They're only three years old. They've got a strong kick, but they're only three years old. They have no money. They can't pay. And yet the window is broken. The parent pays, don't they? The parent steps up. I'll do this instead of you. Now, when the parent pays, nobody says, hang on a second, hang on, that's not justice. The child must pay. 
No, no, they're, they're my child, so it's my debt, and it becomes my debt, and I will pay it for them, and all is well. Brothers and sisters, how can God be just and the one who justifies? How can God do it? That there is only one way, isn't there? Can love and justice meet in only one place? That there is a way, there is a place where God has found a way of expressing both justice and love expressing righteousness and mercy, a way of doing what David could not do and bringing down the sword upon himself in order to save us from himself. I want you just to take your Bibles and turn forward the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, page 941 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 3, page 941. David says, would that I had died instead of you. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's justice, righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Have you ever thought about that, friends? As the Lord Jesus dies, what is God displaying to the world? Righteousness. I will not pass over sin forever. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. As Jesus died, it was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just. But look, friends, and just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, it's very common, isn't it, for people to say that the cross of Christ shows God's love for the world. It's true, isn't it? But, but, but it is only love by being a substituting love, but by, by being the kind of love that takes the place of someone. That the, the cross as an act of love is meaningless if it is not substituting for people. That there's nothing loving about dying, is there? The, the, the couple walking down the beach and the, 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 the husband says to his wife, let me show you how much I love you. And he jumps into the sea and drowns. No, it's not love, it's, it's madness. But, but there, is, there is beauty to it, there is meaning to it. If that person in dying takes onto them what was coming to someone else and saves them in the process, 
No, in the person of the Lord Jesus and in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, God has made a way, Paul is saying, to show his righteousness at the present time. This is how seriously God takes sin. That the penalty for sin is death. Joab, in all his, all his, I guess, bitterness and anger, Joab shows us something true, doesn't he? Justice matters. And yet... Here, perfectly at the cross, God is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To the person who belongs to Jesus, God lets a swap take place. Our head, our older brother, our bridegroom, our family member takes what is ours, sin, and gives us what is his, righteousness, And God displays love and justice together. At the cross, love and justice kiss. And you know, friends, I was thinking about this. I think think it is this, it is this place where love and justice come together that makes us so different, doesn't it? It it makes us, I think, it should make us watch Piers Morgan and in, in a way, side with Piers Morgan. Of, of course you're right. This is idiotic to do. This is wrong to do this. Justice matters. And yet, how different Christians speak towards a man like that. Rather than being superior, we, we, we come alongside him, don't we, and say, we're the same as you. We're the same as you. There should only be from us, from the men and women who come to the cross, we say, that should be me. That should be us. And yet, look what God has done. We become people of profound compassion, people who love justice and truth together in equal measure as well as love. So may it be. May David's cry be answered in our response to God as we give ourselves to him.